You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. When I was in college, I had one professor who would often say in his classes, there are no stupid questions. Maybe you've had teachers say that in classes where you've been the student. Maybe you've been a teacher and you've said it to your students. And the sentiment is appreciated. We want to encourage inquisitive minds, ask questions, seek the answers. In the philosophy department at Auburn University, though, where this was happening, there was another professor who would often start his classes somewhat contrary to the professor who invited all questions. He would tell us often, there is such a thing as a stupid question. And he would say, and there is such a thing as a wrong question. And if you want the right answers, you better learn to ask the right questions. Because the wrong question will lead you to the wrong answers. These two, I don't know how often they got together and debated the merits of their different positions, but it made for interesting dynamics in the department. At the end of Mark chapter 8, Jesus wants his disciples to learn that there is one question that matters. He's going to raise a couple of questions. None of them are stupid questions. One of them is far more important than the other. And the answer to that question is crucial for the disciples and for us. Now, before we dig into the question, you need to understand that this part of Mark's gospel is really a turning point. Things change for the disciples here. They've had issues in the past. They get downright dysfunctional from this point forward. In the past, they were engaged in ministry. They were casting out demons. They were declaring the gospel. They were walking with Jesus. They were learning. They weren't perfect, but they were on the path of discipleship. From this point forward in the gospel of Mark, things get very, very, very dark for the twelve. In fact, they find themselves no longer able to cast out demons in 9.14. They find themselves arguing about which one of them is the greatest. And that self-orientation of their heart emerges. They rebuke people who are casting out demons, a fellow who's casting out demons in Jesus' name, but he's not part of their group. (laughs) You never get that kind of stuff between churches these days, do you? (laughs) We told them their ministry wasn't as good as ours, so they needed to stop because we've got all the answers. They have a monopoly on Jesus, and nobody else can participate in that. And James and John, 
sneak up to Jesus in chapter 10 while the others are kind of away talking about something else and ask him, Lord, when you come in your kingdom, we'd like to have the positions at your left and right hand. Now you know how the gospel ends. You know that when Jesus comes into his kingdom, when he has the king of the Jews written above his head on a sign, he's not on a throne, he's on a cross. And you know who's at his left and his right hand. That's not what James and John were asking for. They were not asking to be crucified alongside Jesus. They had a very different understanding of the kingdom at this point in the gospel. We'll dig into that a little bit more in a few minutes. For now, simply understand they expected Jesus to be a king on a throne. And one of them wanted to be vice president and the other wanted to be secretary of state. Let us have the places of supreme authority. Then the others got angry at James and John for catching Jesus privately to ask for those positions because they were all gunning for them too. We want to see clearly that in the gospel, these guys have darkness coming out all over the place. And they lose their capacity to be engaged in fruitful ministry because they are consumed with their agenda. Self-determination. Everything goes south for these guys at this point in the gospel. Why? Because of the way they answered the one question. The most important question. The crucial question that Jesus asked. It revealed darkness that was in their hearts that they did not know was there. And it'll do that for us. They had to learn what we have to learn. That the way we answer the one question defines every moment. Now, tomorrow, the next day, five years from now, Ten years from now. The way we answer the one question defines every moment in our lives. Now, how do we get to the question? Jesus is traveling with his disciples on the road to Caesarea Philippi. And he asks them kind of a state of the ministry question. You can imagine them walking along. Who do people say that I am? After all, he's been announcing that the kingdom is coming. Crowds have been gathering and following him, and he's doing things other people aren't doing, and people are probably talking. So he asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And the answer is, well, some people say you're John the Baptist, like back from the dead. Some people say you're Elijah or another prophet. And then Jesus asked them the one question, the one question that matters most, because it's important what people think about Jesus. It's more important how we answer, what do I think about Jesus? Who do I say Jesus is? Those are the two questions. Who do people say I am? Who do you say that I am? The first one's important. The second one is most important. Neither of them are stupid questions, but one of them is the right, most important, crucial question who do you say that I am? 
Jesus asked. And Peter answers famously, you're the Messiah. And then Jesus, somewhat to our surprise, responds by telling them to hush up a bit. <laughs> Keep that to yourself. Again, that feels weird to us because aren't we supposed to tell everybody about Jesus? The whole thing comes clear in the next couple of verses when Peter and Jesus find themselves in the most serious conflict in the Gospel of Mark. I say it's the most serious conflict because you kind of expect Jesus and Pilate to be in a conflict. You don't expect Jesus to be tempted to betray his vocation to save the world by his best friend. But really, aren't the best friends the ones whose temptation is all the more tempting? So don't tell anybody, yes, that's right, I'm the Messiah. Peter's got that right. Here's what it means. And Mark tells us that Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man, a name Jesus used for himself, must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly to the disciples, teaching them about what it means to be the Messiah. And apparently there was some kind of disconnection. Whatever he said didn't land just right for Peter and probably the rest of these guys. We, we read this and we think, yeah, that's who Jesus is. He sacrificed himself. He died on the cross. The bad guys came after him and he, he gave himself to be an atonement for our, so, so that our sins could be forgiven. And then he was raised from the dead. Why in the world is Peter opposed to that? That's the plan of salvation. And here's Peter rebuking Jesus. I don't know if you've ever rebuked Jesus. Don't raise your hand. It doesn't usually go well, does it? Peter rebukes him. We think, what is this? What's he thinking? Jesus just laid out like the gospel, death and resurrection of the Messiah. And Peter rebukes him. You see, here's the thing, friends. When that one question comes up, you can say the right words and mean the wrong thing. That's not a good place to be. When the one question is asked, it is possible to answer it with the right words, but have a heart that's all wrong. And that's what happens to Peter. What does that mean? You see, Peter had a very different understanding of what it means to be the Messiah than Jesus did. When we read Jesus saying things like, Son of Man or Messiah, we automatically import 2,000 years of Trinitarian theology. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Jesus is the Son of God, and all of that is true, and yes, He is. And Mark is going to talk about that kind of stuff later. He's not talking about any of that here. And this is where the disconnect comes in. If you were a Jewish person in the first century, living under the thumb of oppression from the Roman Empire, you would be eager for the Messiah. And you would celebrate your eagerness regularly by remembering the last time or previous times that God had raised up a Savior to deliver you from the oppression of the pagans. 
One of those times happened 164 years before Jesus was born. A fellow named Judas Maccabeus. There were a lot of Judases in between a few centuries around Jesus' birth. And Judas Maccabeus found himself and his kinsmen under the thumb of a foreign oppressor. A fellow named Antiochus Epiphanes. Remember that, it will be on the test. Antiochus Epiphanes IV, to be precise. And Antiochus had come in and he had disrupted the temple and he had taken over Judea. And this guy was cruel on top of cruel. Like, bring some pigs in and sacrifice them on the altar. And you know how offensive that would be to the good Jewish boys and girls. And so here they are, slaves in their own land, with pagans ruling. And Judas, what does he do? Well, he gets a posse together. And they sharpen their swords, and they sharpen their spears, and they go in for the great battle. And amazingly, they win. And the pagans are defeated, and the temple is cleansed, and the sacrifices resume their proper administration. And they inaugurate a celebration that would be held every year. You know it. It's called Hanukkah. The annual celebration of Hanukkah is a celebration of the victory of Judas Maccabeus 164 years before Jesus was born. And when Peter thinks you're the Messiah, he thinks you're going to do the same thing Judas did. The people of God are under the thumb of Roman oppression, and we need someone to set us free. So when Jesus says, the Son of Man... Messiah, remember, you can have the right words and have the wrong meaning. Jesus has got to take Peter's understanding of Messiah and flip it on its head. So he says, let me, let me help you out here. This is what it means. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering. Okay, that's, you know, the guys who fought against Antiochus probably experienced some suffering. Everybody probably didn't make it. Some of them, you know, gave their lives for the cause. They're suffering in these kind of conflicts. Okay. Be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. Okay, not everybody might be on board with the agenda, but we get that. But then comes the next thing, and this is the thing where Peter just flips his lid and loses it. The Son of Man must be killed, and after three days, rise again. And again, we think, duh. Like, that's what Jesus does. But here's the thing. Remember, Put yourself in Peter's sandals. You're thinking about what it means to be the Messiah in terms of folks like Judas and others, because he wasn't the only one, who sought to free the people from oppression. You've just said Jesus is the Messiah. Now you've got expectations for him. And he's explained that he's going to be killed. Forget the rising from the dead thing. They didn't, have, they didn't expect Jesus to be raised from the dead because they didn't expect him to die. Because after all, if Judas had thought he was a Messiah and died trying to kick Antiochus out of Jerusalem, well, that would have simply demonstrated that he wasn't actually God's anointed one, wouldn't it? In the first century, a dead Messiah is a false Messiah. You can't beat the bad guys if you're six feet under. So when Jesus says, 
the Son of Man, me, the Messiah, is going to be killed. Like, he didn't even have to get to the confusing raised three days later thing. Peter was gone right there. He did not have a category for a dead Messiah. Well, he did. It was a false Messiah. Right? There's no, you're not the Messiah if you're dead in the first century in Jerusalem. You're only the Messiah if you beat the bad guys, then we'll put you on the throne. That's why James and John wanted that right and left-hand spot. After we run Pilate out of Jerusalem and all his cronies, scribes, all those cats, and you're the king, crown's on your head, we want the top job. Please. So how does Peter respond? <laughs> I've got to straighten Jesus out. Not a good place to be, friends. Not a good place to be. The way Peter answered the one question determines everything for him. Defines every moment. And even though he answered that question with the right words, his heart was not in the right place. He, he didn't allow Jesus to define what it means to be the Messiah, the anointed one. He insisted on determining these things for himself and was unwilling to deny himself and offer himself to Jesus so that Jesus could determine what it means to be the Messiah. So Peter, we are told in verse 32, began to rebuke Jesus. And Jesus offers his strongest rebuke not to Pharisees, not to scribes, not to Roman governors and officials, but to his right-hand man, one of his best friends. That's what makes this worse, isn't it? Betrayal isn't betrayal when it's your enemies. It's only betrayal if it's someone you love. And temptation is even worse when it's someone you trust. And Jesus responds with energy. <laughs> Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking God's thoughts. You are thinking human thoughts. And again, I think we see the humanity of Jesus show up here. He's not just hanging out. Yeah, temptation, bring it on. It's all good. I can handle that. He feels it. He feels the pull. I mean, would you rather go in with a sword or a cross? Your best friend is saying, man, what are you talking about dying? We are going to kill people. Like That's what's happening here. And Jesus is having this moment where he is sharing with his best friends God's call on his life. This is what God has called me to do. This is my vocation. It is going to be painful. It is going to hurt. It is going to involve suffering that you cannot imagine and they say, it doesn't have to. And you think Jesus wasn't tempted by that? Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking the things of God. And Jesus pulls the crowds and the twelve together. It almost feels like in the text that there's a bit of a, let's just take a breath. Let's just back it down a little bit. Verse 34, he called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if any want to be my followers, 
If any want to be my followers, become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? How do we answer that one question? It means that we sacrifice self-determinism and practice self-denial. That's what it means for Jesus for him to be the Messiah, doesn't it? He doesn't ask followers to take up a cross because he has no intention of doing that himself. He's the first one to do it. Jesus embodies self-denial. Jesus, whose face dripped with blood as he hung on the tree. body was shredded, hands pierced, flesh torn. You know, when you are crucified, it's not the blood loss that typically kills you, it's the asphyxiation. You suffocate. Because if you're hanging there with your arms out, it's really hard to fill your lungs up with Jesus embodies what he asks for. The thing is, he's looking for followers. And followers need to be able to answer the question the right way. And that involves self-denial, sacrificing our agendas for Jesus, our assumptions preconceived about who he is and what he wants to do, our insistence on calling the shots in our lives. That's what Peter's doing, isn't it? He has an agenda for Jesus. That's what he's explaining to him in that moment. But Jesus says that's not how this is going to work. And in this moment, we discover like, this is the crucial thing. Following Jesus is comprised of self-denial. If someone says, what does it mean to follow Jesus? The answer is, it means to deny yourself and take up the cross and follow in his footsteps. It's just what it means. That's how he defines it. What does it mean for him to be the Messiah? It means that he's going to deny himself, take up his cross. What does it mean to follow him? It means denying ourselves and taking up our cross. How we answer that one question defines every moment. Who do you say that I am? And if you get who I am, are you willing to sacrifice self-determination and practice self-denial? Because there's no discipleship without it. There's no following Jesus apart from that. John Wesley, our Methodist founder, understood this. Here's what he said, reflecting on this occasion of conflict between Peter and Jesus. 
Wesley said about self-denial these words, it is absolutely necessary in the very nature of the thing, self-denial, to our coming after him and following him inasmuch that as far as we do not practice it, we are not his disciples. If we do not continually deny ourselves, we do not learn of him, but of other masters. If we do not take up our cross daily, Wesley said, we do not come after him, but after the world, or the prince of the world, of, or of our own fleshly mind. Wesley understood that the way we answer that question about who the Messiah is and what it means defines every moment of our lives. And it means self-denial. And this is the sum and substance of Christianity. For what this is the thing. Like if you don't have this, you ain't got it. And someone might come along and say, but Mr. Wesley, Mr. Wesley, I got saved when I was 10. It's all good, right? I know I hadn't been to church in 20 years. And I did go a few times at Christmas, maybe once or twice at Easter. Wesley wouldn't denigrate the conversion experience. Yes. Yes, give thanks to God that he has made himself known to you. But what is he doing in your life today? And how are you responding to his call today? Because following Jesus is not a one-step gig. And we must see conversion as the first step on a lifelong journey. That is a Methodist contribution. It's at the heart of what it means to be Wesleyan Following Jesus means following Jesus. <laughs> the answer to the one question defines every moment, doesn't it? So what does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? It means he's not merely a great teacher. It means he's not just our example. There's a lot of books out there that really don't appreciate the notion that Jesus is Son of God. There's a lot of sermons out there, <laughs> believe it or not. That when we hear them, all you ever hear is, here's Jesus' example, follow it. You never hear, here's Jesus' sacrifice, believe in him and submit. He's a good teacher. He's got some good lessons. Right? Love God, love your neighbor. That's great. Let's do it. Yes, it is. But he's not merely a good teacher. He's not merely a good example. He's the Son of God. He's the creator in the flesh. He's the Messiah. He calls the shots. And he's the one who carried his cross so that we could experience 
forgiveness and redemption and healing and wholeness. And he's the one who said, follow me. C.S. Lewis had a lovely answer for those who would say that he's just a good teacher. Maybe you remember it. He said, you got three options, Lewis said. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. Let's talk about those. He declared that the kingdom of God was coming in him, in his person. He declared that he was the Messiah. He declared that he would suffer, be killed, and be raised three days later. He rode into the temple doing things that only God can do. He embodied the return of Yahweh to Jerusalem. If he's just a good teacher and all of that is just something else, a lie, then friends, do we really want to follow him? How many of us are saying, hey, let's sign up and follow a liar? Sounds like a great idea. He doesn't tell the truth. He's misleading us about his identity as God's chosen one to rescue. Lewis says, don't patronize Jesus. If you're a liar, you're not a good example or a great teacher. Okay, okay, well maybe, maybe he's not a liar, maybe he's a lunatic. Lewis actually says, a lunatic, if I recall correctly, on the level of a fellow who thinks he's a poached egg. Call the guys in white coats, put them in the padded room, that's where he belongs. Do you really want that guy for your great example or great teacher? He says, no, don't patronize Jesus. And for Lewis, for us, for Peter, for everyone, there's only one option left. He's not lying, he's not crazy, he's telling the truth. And he is the Messiah, he is the Lord. He is the creator. He is the redeemer. He is the one who calls us to follow. So we can't just pretend that he only gives good advice. Sometimes we treat Jesus like he's around to dispense good advice. Oh, Lord, I'm having a hard time. What do I do in this situation? Yes, by all means, ask Jesus what to do in the situation, but not only in that situation. He's not interested in giving good advice. He's interested in redeeming us, bringing us under his lordship, and making us whole. So what does self-denial look like if he is the Messiah? We've answered the question, who do you say that I am? You are the Messiah. We're not going to try to negotiate that. We want to be your followers. What does that look like? Self-denial means the opposite of self-reliance, doesn't it? Now, this is where it gets tough for us, because we all grew up with the whole American dream thing. And the American dream thing says, if you work hard, you can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, get you a good job, a house, maybe a nice fence, maybe a little land, and two and a half kids. That's what it is, right? You work hard, Look out for number one, rely on yourself, and you'll be okay. It's 
pretty much the story, isn't it? Again, not denigrating hard work. By all means, work hard. But do not think you can rely on yourself and be okay. And I dare say there's a lot of folks who worked really hard, relied on themselves, got their two and a half kids and their two-car garage and all those things and got to their end of the, the end of their life and felt the emptiness of a life lived without the Lord Jesus Christ. Self-reliance leads to nothing. Emptiness. That's why Jesus says, you can gain the whole world, but what profit if you lose your soul? So if we're thinking about self-denial, we need to think about that in contrast to self-reliance. Right? So I'll work hard and do what I need to do to care for my family and those things, but I am remembering day in, day out, moment by moment, that it's all a gift of God's grace. Paul said, what do you have that's not a gift? Think you worked hard to get that good job? Gift. Think that network is all you're doing? Gift. Think that education that you worked hard to get a good GPA, by all means, work hard. But the breath in your lungs, the beating heart, the opportunities, all of it, gift. Self-reliance is the opposite of self-denial. And following Jesus means cultivating this deep, abiding sense Everything we have and are, this moment is a gift from him. That we do not deserve. Did you know that evangelism is a great opportunity to deny yourself? Very few Christians... It's like single-digit percentage of people who say they follow Jesus ever tell other people how to become followers of Jesus. Did you know that? It's like two, three, four percent have that conversation. You know, who do you think Jesus is? What do you know about him? What do you know about his cross? What do you know about, like, what is the gospel? Can we have that conversation? And we don't have that conversation because we're afraid. And I know firsthand what that feels like. To be in a place where it would be very easy to bring Jesus into the conversation, to have that, that thing happen in your, kind of between your stomach and your lungs, and you're kind of, I don't, what are they going to think about me in this? And maybe they, it's kind of scary. And you never know, if you start talking about Jesus now and telling people they need to believe in him, you might get labeled a bigot in our climate. Self-denial or self-determination? Here's one. Sometimes self-denial means biting your tongue. <laughs> this one's hard, especially for preachers, I'm here to tell you. Like, <laughs> make your living with your tongue. It's hard to bite it when you really need to, you know what I mean? 
But isn't that self-denial? Isn't that it? When we're in that moment and someone says something and we want to, I'm going I'm to get my two cents in. We're angry and it starts here and then it gets to here and then it gets to here and then it comes out here and before you know it, self-determination or self-denial? Does the Lord Jesus Christ have control of my vocal cords? That's a real question. The opportunities for application are infinite. Because the way we answer that one question defines every moment, doesn't it? In every moment, the situation changes. In every moment, the people around us change. And we're at home, or we're at work, or we're at church. Every moment provides a new opportunity for self-denial or self-determination. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Now, here's the thing. That may sound like a really lousy deal. <sighs> Preacher, what a depressing sermon. How you, like, what in the world? Tell me I got to go home and I can't like say what I want to say and I can't go where I want to go. I can't do what I want to do. What, what do I do? Like, where, where, do we, where, where does that leave us? Jesus isn't finished. Those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. Here's the thing, friends. We think our happiness is found in getting our way. I want my preferences. I want my agenda. I want to say what I want to say at the meeting. I want this thing to happen. I want the worship schedule to fit my preference. I mean, sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Huh? <laughs> like all of the stuff, right? We want it our way. That's our space and our room and my plans and I was supposed to be in another country right now and none of it's working out the way that it's supposed to be working out and Jesus says you give that like actually hold on to it and see how that works out for you all that junk in your heart the anger and the frustration and the me my way right now see how that works out for you Jesus says you just take your life and you squeeze it in your hands as hard as you can and you hold on to it as hard as you can and you put every ounce of energy into maintaining your agenda and your preferences and your goals and all of that stuff and you see what you've got when it's over the harder you squeeze, the more it'll squeeze out from your grip. Jesus says, if you open your hands to me, you will find life. You will flourish. It seems counterintuitive. It feels like Jesus is out to cramp our style, doesn't it? I mean, this, of all passages, it feels like Jesus is trying to cramp our style. But he's not. He's trying to make us whole. He's trying to give us life. And we play with silly things. And we chase after foolish things. I want one of those. I want some more of that. I want to say what I want to say. And the whole time we are looking in every direction but the direction of life itself. And his name is Jesus. He says, you... You lose your life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel. Friends, we are not losing our life for the sake of the gospel if we never share the gospel. Okay? Let's just, let's write that on the wall. Lose your life 
for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, and you'll be saved. You will have life. You will be fully whole. You'll be a complete human being. You'll be what God has always desired you to be. You will have his best. You'll have his best. Self-denial or self-determination? Jesus asked all of us, who do you say that I am? You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.